0: Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, my name is John Green and I'm the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. Thanks for being here today. This is the third Sunday in Lent in the year 2020. We are in the beginning stages of sort of the, the ramp up to we don't know what as far as the coronavirus is concerned and so coming with that and with the prayers in mind for all those around the world who are suffering from this affliction, malady, and then for the uh, the prayer would be that, that we would hope that the same would be true, that it would not spread the way that they're fearing that it would right now. And so I want to give you comfort, and I want to give you hope, and I want to give you reassurance that in all things, we know the one who is in control. Today, what we're going to look at, we've got the lessons for today from the lectionary, are Psalm 95, 6 through 11, Exodus 17, 1 to 7. Romans 5, 1 to 11, and most of John 4. So it's John 4, verses 5 to verse 42. This is one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. It's Jesus at the well in Samaria with the Samaritan woman, and the remarkable conversation that occurs between the two of them. And so what I kind of want to talk about is the mission implications that, As you see, I'm kind of thinking about a lot right now about missions and what is it the church should be doing and how the church should be carrying out its mission. How do we share the gospel effectively? And effectively would mean that, that when people hear it and receive the gospel, they understand that through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, they have been reconciled to God. Our sins have Take, been taken upon him on the cross, and through his willing sacrifice of himself, then they have been reconciled to God. So the barrier that sin erected is broken, and now we can be restored to fellowship with God. And Paul argues in that Romans five passage: this, there's more to it than that. He says, he says, there's a lot more to it than that. In fact, with the, with the reconciliation is a wonderful thing, but but the rest of it is what he calls salvation. And salvation would encompass a couple of things, right? I mean, it would encompass um, that we have been saved from the penalty of sin, which is death. It's eternal separation from God, however that's defined and whatever it looks like. But but it's eternal separation from God. And separation from God is separation from life because it's separation from the source of life. So the penalty of sin is death. So Jesus paid the penalty for sin, so now we have life in his name. But how do we know we have life? Well, we know we have life because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection tells us that the penalty for sin has been paid, the the price for sin, death, has been paid, but it's also because of Jesus' righteousness. He was raised to life and raised to life eternal. So we then have been baptized by him in his death and then we will rise with him in his life. And so we have been risen to life. And so salvation isn't just the reconciliation with God. Salvation is salvation from sin, not just from the penalty of sin, but salvation from sin in our lives because he's given us the Holy Spirit with which we can overcome sin in our lives. We can be literally different people. We no longer have to be those who are characterized by our sin. We can be set free from that, and we have eternal life. So salvation is the continuing process. That's the reason Paul will say, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, we should walk before a holy God with fear and trembling in the light of the knowledge that we are children of God. But just because we're children doesn't mean that we don't have fear. I mean, there was fear with me, with my parents. I didn't want to disappoint them. I also didn't want to make them mad. So fear and trembling is not wrong in the presence of a holy God, even though that God is our Abba, our Father, our Daddy. So we've got to keep both those things in mind as we walk before him and we work out our salvation, which is life. Because we've been saved from death to life. So there's two aspects. There's the reconciliation part and then the salvation part, and the salvation part's all about life. It's this life, but it's also eternal life. It, it's not either or, it's both and. This life is meant to be sort of a prelude to the eternal life that we will live, and it should be lived roughly on the same terms. We should be preparing ourselves for that kind of life by the life we live here. We should pursue that life, that life of righteousness, that life of joy, that life of worship. And so um, that's not always the case in Christianity. I don't know why that is. I don't know why it isn't always true in my own life. But there's things that come in front of us and cause us to fear, and then we don't handle that fear well. And I was talking to a friend of mine just this morning at the gym, and we were talking about um, the fact that occasionally it, it must seem to God that that we have reverted to becoming small children. I think sometimes God, when he hears me pray, when he hears me with my frustration and my discouragement, I think he stands there and just shakes his head and basically says, John, I'll give you a minute here, but I'll be here when you're done with your little tantrum. That That's characteristic sometimes of the people of God. And so that's part of this today's lesson is from the Exodus 17 passage. And the Exodus 17 passage couples with that Psalm 95 because Psalm 95 says this. It says, Do not harden your hearts <clears throat> as your forebears did in the wilderness at Meribah and on that day at Massah when they tempted me. They put me to the test, though they had seen my works. And so what Exodus 17 is about is they have come out of Egypt. God's done these wonderful, miraculous things. And he has shown himself, not just to the Israelites, but also to the Egyptians, because they've seen these miracles. And worse than that, they've experienced the bad side of those miracles. Their livestock were killed while the Israelites' livestock was spared. Their firstborn died while the Israelites' firstborn, those who were obedient, at least, um, didn't see that carnage, that genocide. So then they come out, God takes them out of Egypt and and they leave with lovely parting gifts. The Egyptians give them things so that they can go on their way. And we believe that that's part of the stuff that's used later to make the tabernacle, the accoutrement that go with the tabernacle. And so they give them lovely parting gifts and they leave and God takes them out. And they're going in a certain way, in a certain direction. And God stops them and says, now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn around and I want you to double back in front of Pharaoh and his army. I want him to see you because he'll think you're confused and you're lost and you're vacillating about what to do. So instead of taking a straight line way out, God had them double back so that Pharaoh... Could get overconfident and come after them. These were not military people. Remember, they'd been slaves. They tended sheep and goats. That's the reason they got the land out in Goshen. Pharaoh didn't want to have sheep and goat tenders in his kingdom. That's not that wasn't a socially acceptable profession. So, so that's who they had been. They hadn't been in the army. But Pharaoh's army now comes after them, and they flee, and they flee to the Red Sea. There's an immovable obstacle in front of them, and a marauding army, the greatest in the world, coming after them, and God put them there, and the people panicked. Moses kind of panicked a little bit, and then God says, don't worry about it. Go out there, stretch out your staff over the Red Sea. It'll be okay. Took some faith for Moses to do that. Moses had used that staff before many times that God used that staff because he turned it into a snake, turned it back into a staff, did other things with that staff. And so here he is. It's a great test of Moses's leadership. And it's a bizarre test of Moses's leadership because all Moses can say to the people is God told me to reach my hand out with a staff in it over the water of the Red Sea. But he says, stand and you'll see your salvation. Moses had faith whether the people did or not. God parted the waters. They went through. They got to the other side. Pharaoh's army rushes in. The water rushes over them. They all die. They sing this wonderful song of salvation, the first worship song ever in Exodus 15. Now we're a couple of days later. We're out in the wilderness, and we're at a place called Rephidim. And at Rephidim, the people began to say, we don't have any water. It's not that... The the Hebrew here is not that it's the present moment where it's the problem. What it is, is they're seeing that soon and very soon, as Andre Crouch would say, we will need water. And so they came to Moses and said, give us water to drink. And they quarreled with Moses. Give us water to drink. The implied part, Moses. And Moses says, why are you quarreling with me? Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why did you, parentheses Moses, bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses did the right thing. Another great test of his leadership that he passes with flying colors. Moses didn't cry back at the people. Moses cried to the Lord. What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I'll stand there before you on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink." Moses is thinking this is some kind of staff. He's got to trust the Lord. He's got to go strike a rock and water come out of it. Well, I remember in seminary, I had a professor named Alan Ross who was a great Old Testament scholar. He had been to Israel and led tours in Israel on 30 or 40 occasions at that point. and That's been 20 plus years ago, so who knows how much he's had now. Alan Ross was the greatest teacher I ever had, but Alan talked about Exodus. I had him for a class in Exodus, and he talked about this. He, he talked about how liberals will try and say, well, these are not really miracles, these things happened kind of naturally in the wilderness. And one of the things he talked about was the burning bush. He said, well, you know, bushes, they say, sometimes catch on fire in the wilderness because it's dry and it's hot. And, blah, blah, blah. and he said, yes, actually, that's true. It does happen. But that's not what happened in Exodus. What happened in Exodus was that bush was on fire, but it was not being consumed by the fire. That's what caught Moses' attention, that it was not being consumed. And similarly here, he says they will say, oh, this happens sometimes in in the desert because calcification will appear over where a stream was, and you can strike a rock if you know exactly where to hit it, and that calcification will break off and water will come out. And he said, yes, indeed, that's true. I've seen it on a half a dozen occasions when somebody wanted to demonstrate this principle. And it worked. They knew where to strike it. They struck it and water came out. You got to be old to catch this reference. About enough to fill a Dixie cup. I don't think that's going to satisfy 600,000 plus people and their livestock. It's God took natural things and supernaturally made them something else. And so here, Moses strikes the rock and water begins to flow and the people are happy and but he names it no longer Rephidim. He names it Masah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? They doubted. They had fear. And I'm going to tell you, That's a legitimate fear. Honestly, I would say that if I were in that group, I would absolutely have been with those people, had that same fear, because you know how it is, you get excited because God's done something wonderful, and you begin to move out and move forward, and then suddenly you realize, well, wait a minute, there's a lot of obstacles from getting to point A to point B, and you've got 600,000 people plus, maybe a couple million, (laughs) and livestock, That he's got to move from one place to another. They haven't scoped it out. They haven't figured out where the watering places are and all that kind of stuff. They have no earthly idea. And so they test Moses' leadership in this. And they test the Lord because they're not relying on him. They're relying on Moses. But it's an understandable fear and an understandable discouragement to say these wonderful things that have happened to get us where we are today are so great. We will remember these. We will celebrate these. But then you realize that didn't get us where we needed to be. There's stuff standing between us and there, and we don't have any way to get over that hump to get around those obstacles. And so these are it's legitimate. You're going to need water. Your animals are going to need There's no question that that's true. And so they begin to fear. And they begin to get discouraged. And when they get fearful, they begin to quarrel. Because things aren't going as well as they thought they ought to be by this point. Wait a minute. We thought maybe when we came out here, there would just be water all along the way or something. I don't know. Or maybe they just thought, well, nobody anticipated this. The planning was faulty. So what happens is they get discouraged and they come and they fuss at Moses. And Moses rightly sees this as, that's not my responsibility to provide water for this people, it's yours. And God does, and he does it continually all the way through the route of the Exodus. So that discouragement strikes among people. We see in this passage from John, this story of the woman of Samaria at the well. A woman who is not obviously discouraged to us, but she is discouraged. And if you spoke with people from that area and you just read them this, they would say, she's a bad woman. Because here's what it is. This is right at the very first of this thing. Jacob's they, He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near a field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon. And this is when they would immediately react. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. I had another professor, his name was Ken Bailey. Ken Bailey wrote multiple books. He was a professor at a different seminary in Pittsburgh, but he came and taught a class when I was there at Trinity. And He talked about this parable and and he spent, Ken spent about 40 years in the Near East in in this very place. And he talked to the women there and he said, I want to read this to you. And he read just to them, just what I read to you. And as soon as he said, do you know anything about this woman? They said, yes, she's a bad woman. He said, how do you know that? It's because women don't do two things that she did. Women don't get water in the middle of the day. You get water early in the day or late in the day because it's cooler. And I've been in different places in Africa and seen people carrying water jugs, and I know that's exactly right. And the other thing they said was not only is she there at the wrong time of day, she's there in the heat of the day, she's there alone. And the reason that that's a bad thing is because the reason the women go early in the morning is that the women go early in the morning is because it's a very sociable time. It's a time when you learn what's been going on. It's a time when you get the news you need to know about your village and how things externally might be affecting that. And so it's a very social time, but it's a time of in-gathering of news. And so it's important that everybody go at the same time. So everybody's up on everything they need to know about. And so you want to be there when everybody else is there. But this woman wasn't. And so they know right off when they hear that she was there at the sixth hour by herself, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. They knew those people who live in that region immediately knew there's a problem here in a way that we don't. And so the problem then comes up later in Jesus' conversation with her, and we'll get there in a couple of minutes, because I love this story so much, but just walking through the story really preaches itself. She's discouraged. Take my word for it now. You'll get it later. But also you can hear she's there by herself. And Jesus spoke to her and said, give me a drink. And she said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. John tells us then, parenthetically, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, there's a reason for that. The reason is this. The Samaritans consider themselves to be the true Israel. They consider that the original place for worship, which is true, was at Bethel, and that Jerusalem is actually a corrupted version of Judaism. That this is not what God wanted. God told them way back Bethel was the place where the house of worship was. That's where Samuel was. That's where all the Eli was. And that they say that God never said to move on from Bethel. In fact, they look at Deuteronomy and Moses has curses from one mountain and blessings from the other. Curses, they say, came from the mountain where you guys worship, and blessing came from the place where we worship. And so they have only the first five books of Moses. They don't recognize David as a godly king. They don't recognize any of what happens from the end of Deuteronomy forward as truly Yahwistic religion. They say that's something else. It's not God's work. I mean, they're a little proud. And they really believe that they are the ones who have held true to the faith. And these Jews over here are somebody totally different. And so there's intense animosity because this Jewish thing has become wealthy at various points in time. It's become acknowledged as true Yahweh worship. And and they have just remained faithful. I've known plenty of congregations like that, small congregations who worship and who resent large congregations. There's got to be a place where we come together and we acknowledge truth. And that's what the rest of this is about. It's about the importance of truth. One of the things that I think we've lost in mission endeavors and in the church generally is an idea that truth matters and that truth has a very specific kind of content. It's not a your truth, my truth thing. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's pretty specific. It's the scandal of particularity is what we call it. And and a lot of people don't like that. It, it's, it's too um, confrontational. Not soft enough, you need to soft pedal that to, to maybe get there at some point in time. But right now, just tell them about the wonderful greatness of Jesus and they can be reconciled to God and all this kind of stuff. Don't focus necessarily on that he's the only one. So is that Jesus' way? Is that Jesus' way to reach somebody who's truly discouraged? I think when you're truly discouraged, you need something very particular. You need something very clear, crisp, and clean. They needed a miracle. No, they didn't. That's not what they needed in the desert. They needed water. They didn't just need a miracle. They needed a miracle that provided water. <clears throat> and that's what Jesus kind of does here in this passage. So she challenges him, who you think you are, asking me for water. And Jesus response if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water okay that's moving water that's what living water means that's what's in the the labor outside the temple when you come in and wash yourself that water is not stagnant it's not still it's living nobody wants stagnant water Look at Ezekiel 48, and it talks about where the water doesn't flow anymore. Things die. So you want living water to produce life. Water needs to move. So Jesus promises her this very strange thing. And the woman's response, I'm sure there's confusion. And then she says, though, she's still, you're going to hear this pride in here. I'm going to give you commentary as I read. He says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? That's a legitimate question. That well she's at, that he's at, that she's getting ready to get water from, has been giving water for that Samaria 1,800 years. That's a pretty miraculous well. 1,800 years that well has producing water to provide for that village. That sounds kind of like water flowing from a rock in the desert. Wells don't produce that long. But in addition to her asking that question about, are you greater than the one who gave us a well that's been producing water for 18 years? There's a dig. There's a Samaritan dig in that. And it's this. Are you greater than our father Jacob? What's Jacob's other name? Israel. And she's saying he's our father, Jacob. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's asked a legitimate question. Are you claiming that you can do something more than Jacob did in giving us this 1,800-year-old well? And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this well, this water, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water, I'll give it will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Did you hear it? His answer is, yes, I am. Greater than Jacob. What I have to offer is orders of magnitude greater that you can't even comprehend. And it's freely available. He has offered it to her. He has led with grace by making this offer to her. And here again, here we go back to this woman is desperate. Listen to her response. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. It's a source and a place of pain, not of joy in that woman's life. It's It's the symbol of her isolation. From the people she lives among every single day. It's a painful thing to go there by yourself in the middle of the day to draw water because you're not welcome when the respectable come in the morning. So we know she's desperate. And then Jesus does what nobody would tell an evangelist or a missionary to do. And he says, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. I can't think of of anybody who would say, hey, here's the way I want you to go out and share the gospel with somebody. Anything you happen to hear as a word from the Lord or whatever about their sinfulness, go right there immediately. Make the promise of the gospel. Give grace. Get the person to want what you have and then immediately point out how awful they are and how they're not worthy to receive anything like that. But the reality is sin has to be dealt with. If grace is to be grace, I have to deal with my sin. Grace means nothing if I get it without having to deal with sin. What I need to understand is my own unworthiness to receive this incredible gift that's on offering and, and Jesus went there with her. It's her pain. It's what's causing the problem. you got to expose the problem to lay grace on top of that and allow it to do the work it can only do when you have that understanding. It's a beautiful thing. We don't need to treat people as though they were less than us if we know their sins. We don't need to major in other people's sins. We need to major in grace and truth. Those two things must always go together. We can't offer grace without truth. It's just not what's done. Jesus, though, with this woman who is a sinful woman and separated from the community, not claiming to be a religious um, dynamo, he leads with grace. In other instances, when he deals with Pharisees, for instance, he leads with truth. Because they think they have no sin, and so Jesus exposes their sin Grace is always on offer, but if you think that your righteousness is enough, Jesus always leads with truth. If you don't, if you're outside, Jesus always leads with grace. Never leaves out truth, but leads with grace. So the woman's response to that is, "Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. You know something you couldn't know." Our, and then immediately, I mean, she, she, oh, I, you're, you're right, is essentially what she said. But then very quickly, so I don't want to spend any time here. Let's not tarry over my sin. Um, You're you're pretty special. You're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. How typical is that in a conversation, right? Somebody begins to to get convicted. They begin to seize them. And what what do they want to do? They want to go to a religious controversy. Let's go back there. I feel more safe with religion than I do with you. That personal thing that Jesus brings it is hard to deal with, frankly. It's too personal. Let's go back and let's default to religion and let's talk about that. Let's deflect and move back to there. And that's how a lot of conversations go when you're talking to people who are non-believers. Is they're going to want, want, want to fall back on what, what they can perceive to be a religious controversy. I was in, in in a forum one time online and there was a discussion going back and forth about something that had been found in science that was possibly the missing link from uh, humans to something pre-human. And it was a streak of some sort. I don't remember now what it was, but it was about a dozen years ago, maybe something like that. And and I said something about, pardon me if I don't jump on board with this right now, because you know science has made a lot of claims in this realm that it's had to back up on. And, and somebody responded, and I, I don't um, at this point reveal myself. Nobody knows who I am or what I do. So the person responds and says, well, that's the beauty of science. It has um, the checks and balances and peer reviews and all this. I so said, we'll tell that to the, um, the generations of people believing something like Piltdown Man was the explanation. And his next response to me was, don't get me started on the 200 plus errors in the Bible. My response was, what's the Bible got to do with anything? I have no earthly idea why you brought the Bible into this, It was uncomfortable for you to have to admit what I was saying was true, and you leapt to a conclusion you had no legitimate reason to lead to, and that is that I was coming at it from some Christian perspective. I wasn't. I wasn't bringing my faith to the table in that discussion. I was questioning science because those were legitimate questions. But it's easier when it gets uncomfortable to default to something like a religious controversy, and that's what she does. And so Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour's coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It doesn't matter. He says that whole thing is going away tomorrow. And in fact, he says, it's now. You worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So Not only does Jesus break this cardinal rule of don't point people's sin out to him, what does he do next? He says, you worship what you do not know. You are led astray. You worship a false god. You're wrong in what you believe. We worship what we know. Salvation comes from the Jews. That is not what any Samaritan believed. They believed they had been faithful. Jesus says, you're wrong. You're completely wrong. He's not saying, however... In the dismissive way. He's telling her the truth. Nobody tells a missionary or an evangelist or a witness to tell people what they believe is wrong. That they just don't even, that everything you believe is wrong. But Jesus says truth matters. And then he says, but the hour's coming is now here. In him, when the true worshippers will worship of the Father in spirit and truth, and the Father is seeking such people to worship him, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ, and when he comes, he'll tell us all things. What they believed was from Deuteronomy. Moses said, another prophet will come like me. Listen to him. So she says, he will tell us all things. And Jesus' response to her is the most mind-blowing thing in in the entire Gospels. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you and he, I'm the one you're looking for. Do you know he didn't tell anybody else this? Nowhere in the Gospel records does Jesus make a straight, flat statement like this to somebody. And who does he make it to? This sinful woman who is an outcast from her own society, only society she can be in, she's an outcast from that society because she's been sinful and wicked. And that woman, Jesus finds worthy of making a straight statement on him. Absolutely stunning that that's the only place anywhere in the Gospels he makes anything like a statement like that. And he makes it to maybe the worst person we meet in all the Gospels as far as society is concerned. But Jesus doesn't want any misunderstanding with this woman at this point. He reveals himself to her just as he had revealed herself to herself and said, I know you, I want you to know me in the same way. Amazing thing. And then the disciples come back and and their question is, what the heck? Why are you talking to a woman? They're so confused by this. The woman then does this remarkable thing. She's come there to get water. And then John tells us, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? That's Remarkable in another way Because it's exactly what you read In John 1 verses 43 to 51 When when the first two disciples of John Followed Jesus the next day They went and said Almost exactly to this We think we've found Messiah And with Nathanael Jesus says Before Philip Saw you under the fig tree I saw you there So Sir, I perceive you're a prophet, is exactly how Nathaniel reacted. And because he perceived that, the immediate reaction he has was you are the son of God, the one who is coming into the world. This woman did exactly what the disciples did. She reacted exactly the same way. And then Jesus goes on to talk about, here's the deal, fellas, because they wanted to eat. And he said, I don't need anything. I have food to eat you don't know about. And they said, has somebody brought him something to eat? He said, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Don't say there yet four months. Then comes the harvest. Don't you say that? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So they're sitting there and here comes everybody from that Samaritan village. What would they be wearing? White. They'd be wearing what everybody wore. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Here, the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. He stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Maybe true. You may now believe for yourself, which is wonderful, and which is the goal of everything, but that woman went from being outcast to hero because she was at the well at the right time, and she believed. That village owed its salvation to that woman. She didn't want to go to that well She told Jesus she didn't want to go to that well anymore. I guarantee you, that woman loved that well the rest of her life. It was the greatest place in the world because that's the place she met the Christ. And her life was never the same. It's an amazing thing. In the place of great discouragement, Jesus comes. He brings salvation, not just to her, but to her, her entire village. Frequently, in Mark's gospel, particularly Mark, records <clears throat> Jesus is saying, "Whenever anybody believed, don't tell anybody." We call it the messianic secret is the way it's referred to. scholarly. Everybody Jesus told not to go tell. Did, they went and told. That was the very next thing. Every single one of them did. We live in an age where Jesus says, "Go and tell." And we don't. We have living water to offer a world that's discouraged, it's hurt, it's in pain, it knows it's sin. We, just like Jesus, have living water because it is Jesus. He is our living water, welling in us up to eternal life. We have what the world needs the world is discouraged. Let's be those that bring encouragement and hope.